Federal employees who get into legal trouble can, under certain circumstances, accept financial help from legal expense funds. Now the Office of Government Ethics has proposed a rule to revise the rules for legal expense funds. We get the gist of the new situation from the Associate Counsel in the Office of Government Ethics, Elizabeth Horton. Ms. Horton, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. And I have to confess, this is an area of government legality that even I am not familiar with after many, many years of covering this. So talk about what domain we're operating in here, federal employees getting money for legal expense funds. What is this rule all about to begin with, the existing rule? I'll first start off, if I may, with a brief overview of the Office of Government Ethics, in case anyone is unaware or unfamiliar with us. The Office of Government Ethics, or OGE, provides overall leadership and oversight of the Executive Branch Ethics Program. And our mission is to prevent and resolve conflicts of interest. So in that role, we develop and advise on ethics regulations and on standards of ethical conduct for more than 2.7 million employees in over 130 executive branch agencies. Now, I just mentioned the standards of conduct, and within those standards of conduct, there are currently gift rules with which federal employees have to comply. And under those rules, employees would still have to apply in situations, for instance, if they wanted to accept contributions for legal expenses. However, in an effort to balance an employee beneficiary's need for legal expense payments with the potential appearance of corruption concerns, The proposed regulation that we have now seeks to provide a framework for screening for conflicts of interest, for instance, and the appearance of corruption, and also add an element of transparency, because there currently is no existing statutory or regulatory framework specific to legal expense funds. Well, let me try to make an example, totally hypothetical. A contracting officer gets in trouble for having, say, been less than proper with respect to a contractor, and they get into legal trouble and maybe they're sued for this, and that contractor contributes to their legal expenses. That's the kind of thing you'd want to not happen, correct? The framework that we're talking about now is that the scope of the proposed rule is really quite narrow in that it would apply to executive branch employees that want to accept donations for legal expenses for matters related to their official position and job duties. So it would not, for example, apply to legal expenses for personal matters like divorce or child custody or contract disputes. But if it's something that's related to their official position and they have to incur legal expenses for matters arising from that, then those are the types of situations that this proposed rule would speak to. Well, doesn't sovereign immunity pretty much protect executive branch employees from personal lawsuits that they would have to pay for? Or does this sometimes happen anyway? Well, with the sovereign immunity, that I think that's talking about the government as a whole, but now we're talking about individuals. If they are sued in an individual capacity, then they may have to incur legal expenses to defend or even bring forth the claim. And in that instance, I think we all know that legal expenses can be quite hefty. And so if they wanted to receive assistance for that, then this is a method that they can do that. And what the proposed rule seeks to do is really provide a roadmap where they can do that where not only does it protect the agency and the employee in in ensuring that they are complying with all of the applicable rules and regulations, but it also provides transparency for the public in case that there are concerns of any appearance of corruption. How often does this come up in a given year? 
As I mentioned, there is no existing statutory or regulatory framework, and for that reason, we don't really track how many there have been. The proposed rule, I think, does refer to what we estimate may be the case going forward, but it really can't give a a number at this moment. So in other words, if people have this framework and this has to be transparent and reported on, then you could at some point in the future then get an idea of how often this type of aid is sought by federal employees. Right, exactly, because the proposed rule does provide for reporting requirements and approval, so it does provide that roadmap that agencies and employees would have to follow and for transparency as well. We're speaking with Elizabeth Horton. She is associate counsel in the Office of Government Ethics. And by the way, when federal employees come to my studio, we give them a mug as a souvenir, but they cost less than a buck a piece. So am I okay here? (laughs) Yes, I I think that's fine. There are uh, exceptions within the gift rules that allow for things of little monetary value. Yeah, well, they're made in China, so they're not very expensive. (laughs) We wouldn't try to violate any ethics rules here. (laughs) But do you know of any particular cases, again, without having to quantify how many happen annually, have you seen this kind of thing happen where someone goes to outside sources for legal expense help? Yeah, the way this came up, and you know, as the oversight agency for the executive branch ethics program, one of OGE's responsibilities is to develop rules and regulations pertaining to conflicts of interest and ethics in the executive branch. And as discussed, there is not an existing regulatory or statutory framework for legal expense funds. But for instance, the legislative branch has applicable regulations on legal expense funds. So since such funds can be subject to heightened concerns of appearance of corruption, OGE began the regulation process to allow for a framework that would promote that transparency and enable screening for conflicts of interest and have other parameters within which to work. So no specific situation, but we just saw a need for clarity and a potential gap that we thought the proposed rule could seek to And does the proposed rule put a cap or limit on how many dollars someone can accept, presuming the source of the funds is legit and not a conflict of interest? Right. So the proposed rule proposes to do a lot of things. And and some of the things that it does try to lay out are, for instance, yes, contribution limits, as well as prohibited donors. Um, It structures uh, the legal expense fund as a trust. It also talks about the independence of the trustee and has reporting requirements, as well as limits on the distribution of any unused or excess funds and provides for a mechanism for agency review and approval and administration of the fund. So is one of the goals perhaps that employees who are sued personally in respect to their official duties are not kind of hung out to dry there financially? Right. And so what the proposed rule has now, and I I want to note that, again, this is a proposed rule, and we are currently seeking comments from the public on the proposed rule. But as it is proposed right now, there is a $10,000 cap per donor for any contributions. And what's the timetable? What's the status now? And have you gotten comments yet? And what types of organizations or individuals are commenting? So we are currently accepting uh, written comments until June 21st that we'll review and consider. And we really would like to hear from the audience and anyone in the public. So if anyone would like to submit a comment, they can go to our website at www.oge.gov. And at the bottom of our homepage, just click on rulemaking and there they can find instructions for submitting written comments. 
After that, then we hope to publish the final rule in April 2023, and then the rule would go into effect presumably sometime thereafter. Interesting. So have you gotten comments yet? Yes, we've already had an extensive period of input even before we've reached this stage. And we've received input from various stakeholders, from ethics officials, good government groups, the public at large. Um, And so we're still seeking additional input now that we have cobbled all of those previous input together and come up with this proposed rule, as well as looking to the existing regulations that are in the legislative branch and put forth this proposed rule that we now like additional input on. So people can do that through June 21st. All right. Sounds like you're sort of uncovering a whole new area of ethics here or changing something that's been neglected for a long time. As I mentioned, we do have existing gift rules that even if this rule does go into effect, they would still have to comply with those gift rules. But uh, we feel that this is an area that is in need for clarity or there may be a, a gap. And to the extent that there is, we thought that a proposed regulation would be the way to go. Elizabeth Horton is Associate Counsel in the Office of Government Ethics. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you again. We'll post this interview along with a link to that proposed rule at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back 
to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane.
It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.